On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Upon their loins depends the future destiny of the nation. Well, it's made up of special herbs, and the formula has been carefully guarded and handed down from one generation to another. Two days ago, a baby, delivered by a midwife, died. If you're not feeling well, go see Dr. Evans. He's a licensed MD. You can trust him. When we think of the battle over abortion rights, it's easy to picture a fiery feud between feminists and Christians, one side cruel and inhumane, the other heroic and righteous, who's who depends on who you ask. But the thing about history, the thing I love about history, is that it easily defies all our simple stories and inherited assumptions, and gives us instead an impossible tangle of complicated forces, influential individuals, muddled mass movements, sinister vested interests, and covert agendas. And it inevitably shows us an America as complicated as the one we know today. For this series, we're going back in time to before the historic Roe v. Wade case made abortions federally legal and protected the autonomy of people who can get pregnant, up until recently, that is. We're going to investigate the evolution of the conversation around abortion and how and why the legal perspective changed throughout the last 400 years. For part one, we'll look at the lives and the loud personalities of those that made up the early abortion controversies, their sensational public trials and tribulations, and explore the real origins and motivations of each new round of legislation. But this isn't just a story about oppression. It's a story about radical resistance, too, about the small whispered rebellions that passed through the centuries as groups of women tried their best to help each other make their own choices as safely as possible. A real quick note is that legislation around abortion can affect the bodies of any person who can get pregnant, regardless of their gender identity. For the sake of historical context today, I'll be using the terms woman and women, but I just wanted to make that clear up front. Flamboyant abortionists, dangerously determined doctors, problematic feminists, opportunist politicians, and one very sneaky pope. We'll see how the bodies of those who can give birth have been used as potent weapons of both population wars and power grabs by those who seek to control the future. In America, a body that can give birth has always been a battleground, the womb imbued with supernatural politics and possibilities. 
but the body around the womb? Well, that's been seen as a vessel at best and a villain at worst. Give me a soft word. Abby, I may think of you softly from time to time, but I will cut off my hand before I reach for you again. We never touched. Hi. But we did. As much as we like to dunk on the Puritans for their pathological prudishness, arguments can certainly be made that their lives were a whole lot sexier than we give them credit for. By and large, they were a people that believed that sex meant more than just procreation, an enjoyable activity that bonded together a man and his wife. Relations outside of marriage were illegal in a time when church and state had not yet been separated, but rarely did anyone actually punish wrongdoers who were caught in the act. These transgressions were so common in the 16 and 1700s that around 40% of children were born out of wedlock. The Puritans also believed that life began with what they called quickening, the first movements of the fetus that occurred somewhere between three and five months. Women knew the signs of a possible pregnancy much earlier, the missed periods and the morning sickness. But instead, life was defined as something that began only when men could perceive it. And that gave women a kind of grace period, some control over whether or not they wanted to give birth. Generations of women shared whispered solutions for what they called obstructed menzies, recipes for abortifacients, or drugs that cause abortions, each made from herbal blends, usually supplied by local midwives, who were often enslaved or free black women. But when it came to antebellum America and the hierarchies of the plantation, pregnancy meant something very different than it did for the common Puritan woman. By the 1600s, enslavers had created an economic system that relied on a growing African population for the majority of the hard labor. The need increased faster than ships could import new human beings. And so, black women became not only laborers and sexual objects to their enslavers, but also like production lines of infants that would be made into future slaves. Like the Puritans, communities of enslaved women secretly passed down and passed around recipes for plant-based abortion concoctions, blends of indigo plants and blackroot and mistletoe. They used turpentine, sharing with one another that, quote, 10 or 12 drops would miscarry you. But the makers found what it was being used for, and they changed the way of making turpentine. When it was discovered that some of these women had been chewing on cotton root to induce abortion, slavers brutally beat those who were found possessing it. 
1856 essay has a Dr. E.M. Pendleton on record saying that, quote, Blacks are possessed of a secret by which they destroy the fetus at an early age of gestation. Dr. John H. Morgan agreed, saying that abortions were performed by, quote, medicine, violent exercise, or by external and internal manipulations. Another doctor wrote that, quote, all country practitioners are aware of the frequent complaints of the planters about the unnatural tendency in the African female to destroy her offspring. They expressed shock and disgust and even a kind of dumbfounded confusion that, quote, whole families of African women fail to have children. What they continuously refused to comprehend was that, as Angela Davis wrote in the 1990s, quote, When black women resorted to abortion, the stories they told were not so much about the desire to be free of pregnancy, but rather about the miserable social conditions which dissuaded them from bringing new lives into the world. And so... Abortions were a radical act of resistance against the system of white supremacy, a way to prevent their children from a life they themselves were desperate to escape, while at the same time taking a little power away from the future slaveholders and the system at large. For the majority of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America, abortion was seen as a kind of necessary evil that was mostly ignored by the church and state and left to life's private sphere. But when it came to the first of the anti-abortion laws, it all did have something to do with Christianity, but certainly not in the way we would think. It all started with, what else but a good old classic American evangelical sex scandal. When she met Lentz five months ago, they began what she calls a consensual affair, in spite of what she thought were red flags, including him telling her not to Google him. Lentz's rising celebrity may have contributed to his behavior. When you give somebody so much power, they become God to people. Amy Rogers was much like an unorthodox megachurch televangelist, a slick maverick who gave fiery sermons in every town, gathering hundreds of followers and their donations. He was a rebel, a Yale graduate turned Protestant provocateur who vocally called for the separation of church and state. This anti-authority attitude got him banned lickety-split from the whole Episcopal Church community of Connecticut. Azaneth Smith was 20 years old in 1818 when she met the 50-year-old preacher who had been called as a spiritual aid to the bedside of her beloved dying grandmother. At some point, circumstances unknown, the two began a sexual relationship, with Azaneth becoming pregnant soon after. By the time the pregnancy was discovered, however, it was too late 
by which I mean it was too late for an emergency marriage that could convince the community that that baby had been conceived in wedlock. She was already too far along for that old trick. For the preacher Amy Rogers, this would likely shatter his reputation as a man of God and thus put an end to his growing fame and fortune. And so he convinced Azeneth to drink a type of mild poison known to induce miscarriage, promising that he would still marry her and that they would have a legitimate child after that marriage. When the poison didn't work, he used what was described as a tool. And after that didn't appear to work either, he literally just ran away and hid for a while. But in fact, a miscarriage had been induced, and not long after, Azeneth would develop severe pain and then give birth to a stillborn fetus. The doctor that saw her suspected a botched abortion and told local authorities, who then launched a criminal investigation. When they interviewed the injured Azeneth, she told them what had happened. But since there were no official laws about abortion specifically to charge him under, Amy Rogers was instead arrested for sexual assault. He was subsequently found guilty and sentenced to two years in prison. Almost immediately, the General Assembly of Connecticut passed a new law that would ban medicinal abortions after quickening. Historian and author of Abortion in America, James Moore, thought that this law, quote, might best be described as a poison control measure, since some of the substances used to induce miscarriage could cause sickness and even death. So the law, in theory, aimed to protect vulnerable women from philandering men like Amy Rogers and from the hucksters slinging bogus cures and potentially deadly concoctions known as patent medicines. At this time, sexual offenses were usually not taken to trial unless they resulted in serious injury or death. So why was this case carried out the way it was in 1820? Dr. Lolita Buckner Innes, dean of the University of Colorado Law School, believes that, quote, Rogers was such a huge social iconoclast that that's why they were prosecuting his case. In one of Amy Rogers' six memoirs, he would claim that it was actually a doctor who had impregnated Azeneth and that the trial had been nothing more than a farce, part of a conspiracy by both the church and the state to silence the radical messages about their separation and to kill the charismatic performances that were stealing away congregates and their donations. It was alleged by the prosecution and the media that Amy Rogers abducted both Azeneth and her sister during the trial, threatening them to lie on the stand. 
So when the day came, Azenith would not testify against Amy, so they used her original statements taken by authorities after the doctor turned her in for getting an abortion. But after the trial, Azenith would recant those early statements, saying that she and her sister had actually been pressured to lie by the church and by government leaders, the same ones who seemed to be actively working against Amy Rogers because of his loud condemnations of both. But it could also all be a coincidence. We don't know at what point throughout her nightmare that Azenith was telling the truth, or rather at what point she felt she could tell the truth safely, first under the influence of a much older, powerful man, and then surrounded by boisterous men convinced that they alone knew what was right when it came to the safety of their American women. Despite these new poison control anti-abortion laws, the patent medicine craze only picked up steam, and that definitely included abortifacients and birth control, uterine tonics and powders and pills, something called the female regulator, things like rose injections, cathartic pills made from pennyroyal, tansy tea, oil of cedar, ergot of rye, mallow, and motherwort. Any female products with French in the title implied birth control, while the Portuguese female pills printed on the box, do not take while pregnant, may cause miscarriage. A warning, but also a secret message. The abortion underground was still thriving. There was a never-ending stream of married and unmarried women who were desperate for family planning options. And where there is demand, there will always be supply. And of course, a battle over who will supply it. This time, the battle was between a flashy, sassy, rags-to-riches abortionist and a group of pedantic cutthroat physicians on a crusade to get what they want. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at 
factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And now, back to the show. Just a decade after the trial of Amy Rogers and the new abortion law that followed, a young English immigrant named Anne Trow headed to New York City with her useless alcoholic husband and infant daughter, barely a penny to their names. Her husband died soon after the move, forcing Anne to take work where she could as a seamstress in the industrial city. But somehow, even as a single working mother, she was able to dedicate time to a little side hustle, artisanal potions for a myriad of female troubles. This? Mm Mm-hmm. What is it? It's a kind of tea. Mm. Smells like peppermint. Well, it's made up of special herbs, and the formula has been carefully guarded and handed down from one generation to another. Why, I saw letters tonight, read them with my own eyes, that testified that this tea had cured ailments exactly like mine. In 1863, Anne met and married her second husband, Charles Lowman, a man much different than her first, a philosophical liberal free thinker who worked as a printer for the New York Herald. Charles had recently begun printing pamphlets on birth control and abortion, and as a newspaper man, he saw an opportunity to combine their respective fields. So they cooked up a sexy little backstory about this new character that Anne Trow was becoming, an elite midwife trained by a rich grandmother in France. At this time, there was no such thing as formal training for physicians of any kind, no degrees or certifications, and so anyone could call themselves a doctor who apprenticed under one. And there really wasn't a good way to check on that claim either, so yeah, anyone could say they were a doctor. This fancy French grandmother story was as good as any other to prove her expertise. And so the pauper Anne Trow became the illustrious Madame Restelle. A. Cherie Carson wrote in her book, The Crimes of Womanhood, quote, When Madame Restelle began her career, abortion was barely a crime. By the time she died, it was a felony. And by the time she died, she was also known as the wickedest woman in New York, with abortion widely referred to as Restellism. 
As she began to sell her patent medicines, her popularity and clientele increased much more rapidly than she expected. And soon, she was able to offer other services too, opening a discreet boarding house for pregnant single mothers, where she also facilitated adoptions for a fee. Eventually, she started teaming up with doctors to provide surgical abortions after quickening, despite a newer New York statute classifying abortion as second-degree manslaughter on the part of the abortionist. Her husband Charles designed ads for her in the Herald, The Sun, and later the New York Times, each with language coded enough to evade too much scrutiny. For example, the brief 1855 ad block in the Times read, quote, Madame Rastel, female physician, can be consulted upon complaints incident to females at her private residence. But other ads were a little more blatant, like this one from the New York Sun tabloid, quote, is it moral for parents to increase their families, regardless of consequences to themselves or the well-being of their offspring, when a simple, easy, healthy, and certain remedy is within our control? The advertiser, feeling the importance of this subject, has opened an office where married females can obtain the desired information. As is always the case, it was extremely difficult for lower-income women to procure safe abortions. So Madame Restel offered her services to women in need for $20, about $500 today. To subsidize this project, she charged richer ladies $100 each, or $2,500 today. You see, Madame Restel was controversial for the sinful services she offered, but she was also controversial just by virtue of being what amounted to a 19th century girl boss, a woman who owned her own company at a time when that was extremely rare. The birth control biz was booming, and Madame Restel was its female CEO, not afraid to flaunt her newfound wealth, her giant mansion, her various plots of land, her fancy European silk dresses, her pearls, her furs. In fact, she was so unapologetic that in 1847, the Sunday Dispatch wrote, quote, Madame Restel is showy enough for a princess. She likes fine carriages, handsome horses, and expensive living. Her pew is one of the pleasantest in a very fashionable church. She has fortified herself too strongly ever to be overthrown. That same year, a housemaid named Mary Bodine became pregnant by the patriarch of the family she was working for, and they showed up to the New York office seeking Madame Restel's services. She told them both that Mary was too far along for a surgical abortion, but she relented after they continued to beg for her help. 
After the procedure, Mary had experienced bleeding and pain, and the doctor she saw reported to the local authorities that she had likely had an illegal abortion, and Madame Restel was arrested for second-degree manslaughter. During the highly publicized trial that followed, Mary Bodine's abortion procedure was presented as horrifying by the defense, but in retrospect, actually seems like anything but. Her testimony said that, quote, Madame Restel attended me during the night. I remained at her house till Thursday afternoon. I had crackers and tea the first day, then afterwards some vegetables and soup. On Thursday afternoon, she came into the room and found me crying. She asked me what was the matter. I told her I wanted to go home, but I had no money to go with. If I wished to go, she said, she would give me money to pay my passage and to get me some refreshments. Then she took me down into the parlor and gave me some wine. Then she said she would listen and look around to see if any officers were about. She looked out and said there were not. She said if anyone arrested or accosted me, I must return to her and I should go in a carriage. But as much as we'd like to see an uncomplicated feminist icon in Madame Restel, her team didn't exactly take the high road in this case, and instead went the tried and true route of slut-shaming the shit out of Mary Bodine. Quote, Her present state of health is caused by a long course of intemperance, a constant career of prostitution, and is the natural consequence, not of Madame Restel, but of habitual and promiscuous intercourse as a harlot. Not with Mr. Cook, but with every man, every hour, or every five minutes of her life. The defense claimed that Mary had never been pregnant at all, but was in fact struggling through a particularly brutal case of syphilis. Was the real cause of Mary Bodine's ailment a botched abortion? We can't know for sure, but it also could have had to do with the fact that a different doctor had tried to cure what he called a disease existing in the womb by fucking literally putting leeches all over her genitals and then stitching threads coated in an irritant into the skin of her back to create open sores through which the bad disease was supposed to just leak right on out. Not only that, but when Mary was first experiencing pain after the abortion procedure, her shitty boss slash impregnator still forced her to work long hours and even refused to pay Madame Restel for her services, which prolonged the pregnancy even more, which made the procedure even more dangerous. Unsurprisingly, there was no responsibility placed on this man. And in fact, even the defense said, quote, It shall be our effort to neither injure nor disparage Mr. Cook. 
As the trial came to a close, the jury found Madame Restel not guilty of manslaughter, but instead convicted her on a misdemeanor, for which she would spend a year in prison. During the media coverage of this trial, it's possible to see how the rhetoric around abortion was changing into something that resembles what we're familiar with today. The Police Gazette, a massively popular tabloid of the time that specialized in all things sex and gore, ran stories about the trial in its entirety. They called Madame Restel the hag of misery, a monster in human shape who had committed, quote, one of the most hellish acts ever perpetuated in a Christian land. The Police Gazette, ever charming, even included an adorable cartoon of Madame Restel holding a demon that was eating a baby. But there was something else behind these brand new moral musings, as there almost always is, an ulterior motive from an organized group of affluent Anglo-Saxon men who all shared a vested interest in the downfall of Madame Restel and her fellow midwives and female physicians. Because at this point, it was women who handled all things related to birth without any oversight from men. And that was a problem for the new wave of medical doctors trying to corner the entirety of the market. Two days ago, a baby delivered by a midwife died when it ought to have lived. It was my duty to find out why that baby died. Horatio Storer strolled onto the scene as a fiery, viciously ambitious doctor who immediately became obsessed with what he called the physician's crusade against abortion. It was 1857, and Madame Restel's business was still in full swing. As more doctors joined the cause, Storer snaked his way into the brand new American Medical Association, convincing the board to create a Committee on Criminal Abortion. At the center of this movement was the assertion that these new accredited doctors possessed morals far superior to those of the illegal abortionists and midwives. Fellow crusader, Dr. Hugh L. Lodge, the chair of obstetrics at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, put it this way. Physicians, medical men, must be regarded as the guardians of the rights of infants. They alone can rectify public opinion. They alone can present the subject in such a manner that legislators can exercise their powers aright in the preparation of suitable laws. 
Horatio Storer then suggested to the AMA that they offer a contest prize for the best essay about the immorality of abortion. And who do you think won this essay contest? Why, it was Horatio Storer himself, leading to the publication and dissemination of his first book, Why Not? A Book for Every Woman. These new doctors were trying to push legislation that would require citizens to possess actual licenses to practice any form of medicine, licenses that they sought to control. But the public at large did not yet take this new brand of doctor seriously, and something had to be done about that. Harnessing the power of outrage, in 1860, every governor in every state was delivered a monumental letter signed by the entirety of the American Medical Association, but penned entirely and invisibly by Horatio Storer. It was a morality-soaked emotional tirade, presenting the idea that would become the backbone of the anti-abortion movement right up into the present day. The idea that life begins at conception. His brilliant medical reasoning was as follows. The ovum does not originate in the uterus. That, for a time, however slight, during its passage through the fallopian tube, its connection with the mother is wholly broken. It is not rational to suppose that its total independence, thus once established, becomes again merged into total identity. I'm no doctor, but that doesn't make sense. Dr. Hodge echoed this claim in a lecture, asserting abortion to be morally wrong, quote, on the grounds that embryos could think and perceive right and wrong. Suddenly, the language of Christian morality started to mingle ever so slightly with science. Quote, human existence corporeally and spiritually commences not with the birth of the fetus and the first inspiration, but at conception. He went on to call the fetus, quote, the gift of the creator. Phrases like intrauterine murder, medical respect for fetal life, infant murder, and antenatal infanticide started showing up in medical texts and newspaper stories. But that's not all. Storer Hodge and the AMA at large also utilized another underlying public anxiety, one that was coinciding with this new anti-abortion movement. A mass wave of European immigrants had been entering the colonized United States, around 5 million between 1851 and 1880, with the majority being Irish Catholics, the natural-born enemy of the WASP. 
In the same rhetoric, we hear again and again, these immigrants were referred to as violent, dirty, savage, hypersexual, and constant threats to the life held dear by real Americans. Horatio Storer took note of a new problem for the average Anglo-Saxon, the mysterious falling birth rates among their supposedly superior stock. Quote, it has been found of late years that the increase of the population has been wholly of those of recent foreign origin. More than half of the books and tracts put out about abortion that are still stored at the Library of Congress made direct claims that the practice of abortion was a direct contributing factor to the decline of the Anglo-Saxon race. Horatio Storer wrote in his first book, quote, Shall the West and the South be filled by our own children or by those of aliens? This is a question that our own women must answer. Upon their loins depends the future destiny of the nation. According to Nicola Beisel and Tamara Kay in their essay, Abortion, Race, and Gender in 19th Century America, quote, the industrializing and urbanizing social structure also led to concerns about the evolution of an elite class so removed from nature that they were sexless. The appearance in the late 19th century of a class of rich women who devoted themselves to a seemingly endless round of parties where servants cared for their children led some to express concerns that these fashionable women were unnatural. Dr. J.T. Cook wrote in his 1868 book, Woman's Great Crime, quote, What vast armies of premature martyrs to women's vanity, woman's selfishness, and woman's inhumanity have gone up to the great white throne with no earthly record of their sacrifice save the painted, fleeting, and fading beauty of vain and fashionable mothers. And then he compared abortion at any stage to infanticide. But these new laws that the AMA were pushing for held an important exception. If an accredited male doctor believed the pregnant woman's life to be in danger, then the abortion could go forward. These had to be moral and reasonable decisions made by responsible, upstanding men, not by brainless midwives and sinister quacks who they constantly accused of botched surgeries and deaths by poison, and certainly not by the very few women who attempted to assert a place in the gynecological profession, those who were also often accused almost like witches, of performing illegal abortions. It's around this time that the rhetoric begins to move toward blaming women for getting abortions, calling it murder, whereas the previous rhetoric pointed to the need to protect women from evil abortionists. 
and the American history of abortion becomes even more complicated when we realize that the feminist suffragists of the 1800s were by and large opposed to abortion too. But when we put this fact into its proper context, we can see that it was actually a radical opinion. While doctors believed that loose women were to blame for the cultural decay that abortion proved, feminists believed that the uncontrollable sexuality of men was the true culprit. They saw abortion as a way for husbands and men in general who pressured or forced women into sex to do what they wanted without consequences. The thinking went that if there was always a risk of pregnancy without that easy solution, men would think twice, giving women more power to prevent assaults and to make decisions about when they wanted to have sex and when they wanted to get pregnant, which they called voluntary motherhood. And so, in this context, we can see the beginnings of the pro-choice movement. More after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. Unfortunately, many of the most prominent leaders of this feminist movement were also of that pesky Anglo-Saxon stock. And like so many in America, they were beginning to flirt with the utopian human breeding project called eugenics that was just over the horizon, also showing a strong tendency to blame Irish Catholic immigrants for the nation's ills. One writer penned in the feminist journal The Revolution in 1868, quote, Restellism is murder with the Roman Catholics, half a dozen children in every Irish family, only two in the modern American family. What is the matter? Answer, Restellism. That is why, shortly, the children of the Emerald Isle will be walking through the graveyards of the Puritans. Mainstream feminists were also against the other vices that they believed endangered women through the sins of men, things like sex work, pornography, alcohol, and gambling. This perspective would also be shared by a conservative movement led by Dr. No Fun himself, United States Postal Inspector and Secretary of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, Anthony Comstock. This new anti-obscenity legislation known as the Comstock Laws made it a criminal offense to send anything deemed inappropriate through the mail, including porn magazines, sex toys, personal sexy letters between lovers, 
and information about women's sexual health, which included information on birth control and abortifacients. The many-armed monster of the anti-abortion movement needed a perfect scapegoat. And there was a clear winner with her pearls, her furs, her fine horses and carriages, and especially her seemingly never-ending girl bossian audacity. Because Anthony Comstock was a fucking nasty bitch who played dirty, he showed up on the doorstep of Madame Restel one sunny day in 1878, posing as a husband in dire need of help. He told her that his wife was pregnant again and that the family was already overburdened with children that she was a fragile woman who would likely die if she had to give birth again. Comstock left with a medicine to induce miscarriage, and that was all the evidence he needed, showing up the next day with the police. Nasty. But despite the perverted way he lusted after the punishment of his perceived enemies, Anthony Comstock would never get to harangue the famous abortionist in court. On April 1, 1878, Madame Restel, formerly Anne Trow, was found in her bathtub with her throat cut from ear to ear. Though some believe she was murdered, it's more likely that she committed a particularly brutal form of suicide. Anti-abortion activists would claim that she took her own life due to the guilt of all those murders that she had performed. However, her servants told the press that her behavior had become increasingly erratic and that she appeared terrified of going back to prison, that they had heard her the night before pacing through the halls of her enormous mansion, calling out to no one, why do they persecute me so? I have done nothing to harm anyone. To say this physician's crusade against abortion, or rather against women in healthcare, was successful would be a massive understatement. Before the AMA was created, 95% of births were performed by midwives in the home. But within 60 years, that number would drop to less than 15%. Eventually, aspects of Western medicine would transform life as we know it, making life longer, safer, and less painful. But in the 1800s, these doctors didn't actually know what they were doing, i.e. the leeches and skin stitching enacted on Mary Bodine. They would often cause harm to women giving birth by trying out fancy new tools to hone their skills or trying to move the process along too quickly without regard for the physical or emotional needs of the mother, a skill that midwives had been honing for centuries. 
Once the doctors got what they wanted, midwives were banished away, demonized, and barred from getting the degree that would have allowed them to return to the work that they had been doing for a lifetime. When Madame Restell died, slavery had recently been outlawed, and many free Black women had begun working as midwives for both Black and white clients, many carrying a deep understanding of the dire importance of controlling one's own body, lest people in power control it for their own agenda, as had been the case for more than 200 years. Those that remained often operated in secret, providing safe abortions and information about birth control to women of all ages. A handful of these new doctors did fight in favor of abortion rights, working with midwives, attempting to incorporate the benefits of both fields. And there were also some feminists who were ahead of their time, those who supported abortion rights because it was the right of every woman to have bodily autonomy. But those voices were not really part of the mainstream conversation. What has been glaringly absent from America's anti-abortion history is the group who are perhaps the most vocal on the topic today. In the words of Horatio Storer himself, quote, We are compelled to admit that Christianity itself, or at least Protestantism, has failed to check the increase of abortion. But missing from our conversation so far is the Catholic perspective, an opinion that became a powerful lobby once the 19th century immigration hysteria died down and the church gained more political power with a large block of voters. We might assume that the millions of Irish Catholics entering the U.S brought with them the same strong stance against abortion that we hear today. However, it wasn't until 1869 that Pope Pius IV defined abortion as murder and made it an excommunicatable sin, the first time it was seen as a serious crime in 300 years. So what happened? Let's ask Napoleon III of France, who was super worried about the native French population in the mid-1800s. Like so many of his contemporaries, it was all about numbers, baby. And the falling birth rate of the French meant a loss of future soldiers for his project of European domination. At the same time, Pope Pius IV had been trying hard to consolidate power, to get past a doctrine to ensure papal infallibility. Basically, the idea that the Pope is always spiritually and morally correct in everything he teaches. But leaders from other Catholic nations, they didn't love the idea of being undermined by Catholic authority. But then the Pope and Napoleon came to the bargaining table, 
understanding that they could both use this issue of abortion to get what they wanted. And with one of those patented shadowy handshakes, a mutually beneficial bargain was reached. The Pope would take a strong stance against abortion, thus, in theory, increasing Napoleon's population. And in return, the Emperor would take a strong stance in favor of papal infallibility, thus increasing the power of the Pope. Everybody wins, right? In part two of our series, we'll continue to see evidence that the bodies of those who can give birth have always been used to act out population projects by powerful lobbies seeking to increase their own power. And we'll see plenty of evidence, too, that the movement toward abortion rights is a complicated historical tangle all its own. This was American Hysteria. If you'd like to know how you can get involved in the fight for reproductive freedom, head to podvoices.help. That's podvoices.help. If you'd like to have more of our show, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you can get access to two different podcasts, Hysteria Home Companion, which is a talk show where producer Miranda and I discuss all the hottest gossip from the cutting room floor, things that didn't make it in the episode, or tangents we believe to be worth exploring. Previous topics include the polyamorous cult of Ayn Rand, celebrity alien abductions, the Manson family, extreme haunted houses, and recently we did our first live stream. It made us feel young again. And you can also get access to Walk With Me, a podcast where I go on walks and talk to you in a more candid and personal manner. So head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria if that sounds up your alley. You can follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. And please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts if you're feeling particularly generous. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, sound designed by ClearCommo Studios, co-researched and co-edited by Riley Smith, and co-produced and co-edited by Miranda Zickler with voice acting from Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And in the spirit of history, may we all find ways to support each other. Have the best week you can. <laughs>